Hello, listeners. Welcome to Alpha Bunga Bunga. This week, we're examining the happenings in Myanmar. What's happened to Aung San Suu Kyi as a liberal hero of the West, especially in light of the massacre of Rohingya Muslims in the country. Listeners should know, however, that our interview with Southeast Asia expert Lee Jones was recorded on the 24th of August. Since then, a worsening cycle of violence has erupted in the western Rakhine state, with something like 40,000 refugees crossing the border into Bangladesh. Aung San Suu Kyi, meanwhile, has accused international aid workers of helping quote-unquote terrorists in the area. This makes the questions we discuss here about her role and what's happened with the transition to democracy there particularly relevant and pressing. But of course, we did discuss this without the knowledge of these most recent events. I hope you enjoyed the episode, and I hope it brings some clarity to a confusing and difficult situation. We've got, a, um, we've got our next episode lined up and ready to go. What are you doing? What are you doing the next one? Are interesting political happenings and fucking... <laughs> <laughs> Those are the best kinds of things you want to discuss. So we're talking about Italian politics. <laughs> <Hey>. <laughs> This week we have we had a guest as part of our usual scheme, and the guest this week is Dr. Lee Jones, who teaches politics at Queen Mary's University of London and is a Southeast Asian specialist. Say hi, Lee. Hi, Phil. And also we are going to be joined by our usual coterie, uh, George and Alex. Okay, um, this week, uh, because we have a guest on, we're going to be talking about um, what's happening in Burma or Myanmar, as it's officially called now. One of these stories that occasionally surfaces in the media around the world um, with regards to conflict of Muslim, the Muslim minority in Burma, with regards to attempts to manage the political transition. And it's one of these stories that's very distant from uh, the West at the moment, and but also fantastically interesting on all sorts of different levels, in particularly the way in which it plays into a certain stream of contemporary left liberal politics, but is also um, interesting in and of itself, and we look forward to hearing what Lee has to say about it. But before we do that, um, let's hear what people have been thinking about this week. Um, so let's start with our guests. So Lee, tell us, what have you been thinking about this week? Well, I'm afraid, Phil, I've been thinking about Charlottesville, which is a bit repetitive, I think, for your listeners, because you did a program on it last week. But still, I've been thinking about it, and I've been thinking about the really hysterical response to Charlottesville, this idea that there's some kind of serious fascist threat to American democracy and just trying to get my head around why people think that's the case when you know, the left basically won the culture wars and the, the right, the alt-right is some kind of minor, sad little backlash against that. But there is just widespread hysteria, not just on the left, but also in the liberal media, you know, these... Uh, front page of The Economist showing Donald Trump as a Ku Klux Klan member and so on. It's just trying to get my head around that hysterical response. Um, when you say hysterical, what do you mean? Well, what I mean is that if you look at all data on the way that Americans think about race, about sex, about sexuality, everything shows that opinion has moved massively in a, in a, a positive liberal direction since the 1970s. Um, so in many ways, that gay marriage, for example, the enormous progress made in that in recent years, that when there are demands for equal rights, essentially uh, they're kicking at an open door. And, you know, the, this national rally for uh, Unite the Right managed to draw 500 people in a population of, um, what is it, 
323 million people. So it's a tiny, tiny fringe movement, but they're absolutely convinced that uh, it's some kind of enormous present day, uh, huge threat to American democracy. So that the main thing that the left should be doing now is anti-fascist organizing, which seems to me to be completely deluded. So yeah, it's a little bit too this raises the question then of, of, of what what does explain this hysterical reaction because i think you're right that the numbers are pretty small um why is everybody so scared of these of these alt-right um alt writers well it's, it's obviously got something to do with the feverish atmosphere around the election of donald trump so if you've already convinced yourself that the election of donald trump uh is the result of half the country being uh, a basket of deplorables who are all united by some uh, terrific white lash uh, and that everybody who supports Donald Trump is a terrible racist, then you can quite easily convince yourself that, you know, fascists, fascists are on the march. I mean, serious commentators have said, yeah, Donald Trump's a fascist, you know, he's a fascist regime. Um, so when you actually see, you know, real fascists marching in the streets, waving swastikas, uh, it's, you know, that is quite shocking. Uh, when you've already decided that half the country is already like that, then you can see it as representative of, of a much broader force. So it stems from their completely flawed analysis of the, of the reasons Trump was elected and who Trump supporters are and why they support him and so on. So if you've already decided that, then this is why I think a very small uh, fringe group gets blown completely out of proportion. I think, like, if I remember rightly, an episode ago, no, one episode um, before we did Charlottesville, Phil made kind of a passing comment about where did all the Donald Trump is a fascist stuff go um, now that he's mm. six months or so into office. Um, and then shortly after Charlottesville happened, and then, you know, some might say, okay, well, that's just Phil being proved hideously wrong immediately after. But I think it's exactly as you say that. Um, it remains remains hey, a really hey, 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 hey. <laughs> I was going to defend you here. Um, that uh, which is which is a rarity. So take it. Um, was that uh, it? Yeah, precisely, good save. yeah Charlotte, Charlottesville is, is precisely shown to be a very fringe movement, and even sections of the alt right or the alt light have themselves distanced themselves from mm. the white supremacists, the Ku Klux Klan weirdos, the kind of old um, the old South revivalists, and so on. Mm. Um, so it just does seem that it's a product of the left being unwilling to make any distinction within the right, happily to call anyone a fascist. Um, and a certain, I don't know, somewhat disguised glee in ha actually having fascists to oppose because it makes this mm. political answer supposedly so easy um, at a time when, you know, politics is hard. <laughs> yeah, I think that's true. But it's also, of course, you know, true that Trump, uh, Trump's reaction was extraordinary. The attempt to sort of say, oh, it well, was, yeah, you know, violence on both sides. And, um, you know, he has actively courted uh, the worst aspects of uh, white nationalism. And so, but this is, but of course, as a result, he was completely and utterly isolated. I mean, everybody from, you know, Mitt Romney to uh, various military chiefs was coming out and saying, oh, you know, uh, you know, we support liberal values and diversity and so on. I mean, you know, plenty of woke imperialism going on in the United States. But the left was unable to sort of distinguish between Trump and literally everybody else on the mainstream right and say, basically, Trump is an idiot, right? And Trump just says the first thing that comes into his head and he's probably a bigot. Uh, and there's, there's plenty of evidence that he, he holds, you know, personally racist views and so on. 
and he's exposed that. But the, the left is not willing to see that he is isolated and, and the, the mainstream of American opinion has moved on. Um, you know, the, 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 the alt-right is by any measure a tiny, tiny uh, proportion of American society. Society has moved on. Trump is a sort of, you know, Trump and the alt-right are a kind of uh, a reflex reaction from the side that's lost in the culture wars. But the left is locked into this battle. And I think you're right that they get a kind of kick out of it. They get an adrenaline rush out of, well, now we know what we're doing. Now we can go out and fight the fascists. And we see that in the, in the, in the UK too. You know, the building up of um, the British National Party and then UKIP as these kind of, you know, bogeyman figures that are going to, uh, you know, turn us into a, a rainy fascist island in the, in the title of one article. And it's just, it's just bullshit. Um, it, it's, it's a complete uh, inability to reckon with the realities of contemporary politics. And so people reach for easy, crude analogies to try and make sense of a very complex picture. Yeah, Alex, Just one ahead. thing, I mean, because we didn't get a chance to discuss this on the last episode, which was subsequent mm. to Charlottesville, there was the Boston demonstration, which, again, mm. it was a, this supposedly pro-free speech rally by alt-writers who claimed the banner of free speech uh, in opposition to the liberal left. There were about, I don't know how many of them were there, about 500 surrounded by, 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 a, by a sea of supposed anti-fascist yeah. or you know yeah. anti-racism protesters. And that should be... The final word on the matter. I mean, that's of course. pretty conclusive, and I don't know if that's going to be the lesson that's drawn um, Not by at all. the liberals on the left, but um, but it should be. No, well, you're absolutely right. I mean, apparently there are only about a hundred attendees at the free speech rally, uh, none of whom were white nationalists, and then there was a counter protest of forty thousand, and then there were protests in many other cities, and apparently far right um, activists have called off something like forty odd protests. So. You are absolutely right that the numerical balance at that um, at that rally in Boston proves the point that a, a, a mad, frenetic, fevered campaign against fascism is redundant. It's it's you don't have to persuade the American people not to be fascist; uh, they're already not fascist. Um, but the, the the lesson that the left will take from this, because they're not very bright, is um, well, we beat them back. Right. This rally would have been much bigger. Uh, they would have held other rallies if we'd not rallied against them. And it's really important that we come out and fight this, blah, blah, blah. Um, so they're just incapable of objective analysis at the moment, I think. And they'd much rather go for uh, knee jerk hysteria, because I think in part it gives them a sense of mission and purpose. Uh, and it allows them to compare themselves to people landing at Normandy beaches on D-Day and so on. And it's it's uh, it's play acting, but it will have a very big impact on the direction of the left because it's a huge distraction. And yeah. uh, the continuing branding of everybody that doesn't agree with you as a fascist is not a way to win support. And what the left desperately needs is to win support. So, George, are you capable of a objective, non-hysterical analysis? Are you going to compare yourself to somebody who's landing on the beaches at D-Day? What have you been thinking about this week? Not on his birthday, um, surely. <laughs> exactly. It is, it is my birthday, listeners. Um, happy birthday, happy birthday happy George. Happy birthday! Yeah, obviously it won't be when anybody's listening to this, but that's fine. <laughs> um, no, think about like the Queen and have two birthdays. Yeah, I could I could try. I don't think I'd get the popular support um, for it. But uh, yeah, I've been, I guess I've been thinking about two things. One which follows a bit from um, uh, Lee's comments, and this is whether we whether we're alt-left, um, maybe we are, maybe we're not, but we can we can come back to that. 
But I've also been listening to um, the Age of Napoleon podcast, which um, is really very good, and I'd recommend it to any... George, any... George, George, we're not here to sell other people's podcasts. We're here yeah. to sell our podcast. Why are but... you like, what are you, like a shill for the Age of Napoleon? No, I'm not. I'm a, I'm a genuine, like, grassroots uh, campaigner for this podcast. I just think, it's, it's, just think it's, a good, it's a good, interesting podcast, and why not? Why not recommend other people's podcasts if you've got if you've got ones that you're listening to that you think are really good. Um, How much are they paying you and are they going to recommend us? <laughs> well, obviously that's, that's the intention behind me kind of like being like, Oh, it's just a great podcast is that they will, will divert some of their many more followers towards us. Um, but the, so yeah, this podcast, which I'd recommend to all, uh, to all, all of the, the participants on this show and also all of our listeners. Um, yeah really good and it it also made me think that today 24th of august is the uh the day in history when Toussaint Louverture went uh got got locked up by the the french um in uh, a jail near near the near the swiss border um and it yeah it made me th i didn't actually I, I, I think i think i think alex will tell us how to properly pronounce his name uh yeah maybe Can you um, do the I, wasn't, I wasn't listening who? <laughs> He's oh, Irish, anyway. How can he pronounce something in Swiss? No, we, we've been there, Lee. We, we're not, we're not treading that ground again on this podcast. <laughs> I thought it was just a running joke on this show. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it's I mean, a running something. It's a running something. Like a joke is a big kind. I thought um, this show has developed its own memes now already. It has developed its own memes. It yeah. has its own memes. <laughs> yeah, so I've, I've, I've been thinking about, um, but not actually got off the shelf to read uh, my copy of Black Jacobins. I'm thinking about revolutionary failure i guess um because it's quite it's quite sad that i know where this age of napoleon podcast is is going because it's all it's all good it's all going well at the moment you know the french revolution is is kicking off but you know that that's gonna gonna fail and have very uh, a number of betrayals um and i think the one of the the haitian revolution is, is uh, yeah one of the, one of the very worst so yeah that's what i've been thinking about but a bit i should have come up with something a bit more upbeat um revolutionary failure that's what's been on my been on my mind after that incredibly like <laughs> positive and refer resounding message of support for the left today and the project of this podcast in particular um alex are you a member of the uh, are you a member of the alt left what have you been thinking about this week i mean I'd be, i'm totally fine with that I, it's just such a stupid um stupid moniker because it seems that like, I mean, it's alternative to the existing left. Yeah, okay, that that's all right. Um, is it that the alt tag, when it's attached to the right, means kind of transgressive and racist, and therefore the the alt left is transgressive and racist? I mean, but that's not what alternative means necessarily. So, I, I mean, it just seems to be like the, the, the kind of the cheapest, you know, oh, I know you are, but what am I kind of come back? Um, so, whatever. I've got nothing to say on the alt left. It's it's a it's a nonsense. Um, what I have been thinking about, um, like all kind of serious, high-minded individuals this week, was how shit the last Game of Thrones episode was. Um, but I've also realized, subsequent to posting about it and discussing with people, that everybody else felt the same uh, and were similarly railing against the innumerable day ex machina in the last episode and. Um, I don't want to give away any spoilers in case people haven't seen it, but, you know, it's just shit. Um, and characters do things which um, bear no consequences, which they would normally be punished for. Uh, they do things which don't really fit within the 
whole trajectory of their character and their development, so it's really terrible. What I have been watching that is good is something that I know I've recommended to, to a couple of you guys before, which is uh, 1992, an Italian series yes, from Sky yes, Italia, which is really, really brilliant. And I mean, I'm sure we'll come back to talk about this at some point, because um, we'll have to talk about Italy at some point. Um, but this series is something that I'd really highly recommend because it... I mean, it's a completely fictionalized story, and most of the main characters are, are fictional, though there are some notable, real um, historical figures in it from the period of the collapse of the First Italian Republic, such as the main uh, Manipulita investigator Di Pietro. The best thing about it is that it tells the story of Berlusconi's rise, but Berlusconi barely features in the series, and you just see these parts coming together um, with this sort of shadow of Berlusconi sort of wafting in the background almost um and it's it's just very well done and it's very italian in the best possible sense um which is to say not necessarily tacky because i think certain italian cultural products can be a bit tacky but it does it in kind of very um sort of elegant manner um in terms of its cinematography and lots of contemporaneous music and all the rest of it um but it just i think i mean to be honest about it we we this podcast is called Alpha Bunga Bunga. It's quite clear what the no, references. No 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 no. Don't give it away. Don't give it away. <laughs> it's not a spoiler, really. But um, but in terms of, we I think agree that the kind of the what Berlusconi represents is really important to understanding the the period of the nineties and two thousands and into today probably, um, and this just captures that moment really brilliantly. Um, the kind of post Cold War. A collapse of the old Italy and the emergence of something new, but in a kind of mangled form in which it emerged. So anyway, I'll just really recommend it. Yeah, thank you very much. So we have a recommendation for a new TV show to all of our Game of Thrones fans and a recommendation for an alternative podcast um, and a discussion of uh, something that we already talked about. So that's been a really productive. <laughs> that's been a really productive uh, set of contributions. Thank you very much, guys. Well done, Bill. You know, we said last time you needed to be a bit more enthusiastic. You can't just do that at the beginning and then just shit all over any contribution <laughs> subsequent to that. Kind of I'm hyper... totally enthusiastic. You just need to, like, you know, kind of. He's enthusiastically negative. You need, okay, to, yeah. you need to like man up and like you know like deal with the. Deal with the bunga bunga. Yeah, George, stop being a snowflake. Okay, yeah, I'll go and deal with the bunga bunga, whatever, whatever that means. I just need to Google. And, and don't, don't, Can don't you put, put your microphone on mute while you do that? Put my symptoms yeah. into <laughs> you both, You don't want to Google it online, I don't think. Um, so uh, Google it offline. Moving, moving <laughs> it on. <laughs> yeah, Google it offline. <laughs> Moving to our, so as we, we normally have uh, occasionally, both in relation to guests and otherwise, as part of this podcast, we have a what the fuck is going over there, WTF segment. What is happening over there in whatever part of the world that might be? And we've talked about different parts of the world, um, France, Ireland, um, Brazil, further afield, and we're going to be talking about Brazil. Sorry. We're going to be talking about Burma. It's another country that begins with a B, so that's how I got confused. It's actually called um, Myanmar, so it begins with an N. Yeah, it's technically called Myanmar. Thank you. That's why we bring on these experts to inform us about the official names of just countries. Wikipedia level knowledge. Like that's what that's exactly. what we're aiming for. Sorry, exactly. sorry, Phil. Just just to clarify for for our listeners, so Burma and Myanmar are the same country. 
Burma, Myanmar, Whoa. the same country. That's thank you very much. That's the end of the show. Thank you, Lee, for joining us. <laughs> you have clarity now on all of this. So, what I was going to say was, um, I was thinking about the, I was thinking about uh, introducing this section, and it took me back to thinking about a fantastic. Well, I want want to say advisedly, a good. 1999, 1995 movie called Beyond Rangoon with Patricia Arquette. And in this movie, she goes to Burma under the military dictatorship, Myanmar. Um, and it's set in this, she's kind of had this, it's supposedly based on true events. Um, she goes to um, Burma. I don't know where the movie is filmed. It presumably wasn't filmed in Burma. But there is, um, she goes, she's had this tragic event in her life. Her life is falling apart. She goes to kind of rediscover herself among Oriental Eastern wisdom or whatever. And she goes to Burma. And I remember watching this movie with my dad when I was, must have been, I guess, around 16 or 17. And we both, you know, we both kind of enjoyed it. And it, I remember it being kind of a um, remarkably moving movie, given that I was a teenager at the time not particularly taken with political movies, but nonetheless, there's this one scene in it, which is astonishing. So Patricia Arquette, who plays the kind of hapless American tourist looking to rediscover herself, she finds herself in the midst of this protest in the streets. And she sees the protesters who are protesting the military curfew, protesting the military crackdown. They're marching towards a line of troops. And she's in the middle of all of this chaos and she's totally confused. She doesn't know what's going on. She can't follow the chants because to credit to the movie, as much as I remember it anyway, the chants aren't in English. And then there's this astonishing single scene where um, this very kind of um, dignified, attractive lady walks from the crowd towards the line of troops and she walks right up towards the line of troops, a Burmese lady leading the demonstration. And she's staring right into the barrel of a gun. And this soldier, he's sweating, and the barrel of the gun is like gyrating with tension and adrenaline. And she just gently pushes the barrel of the gun to one side. He kind of drops the gun, and she marches through the line of soldiers. And there's this enormous crowd of cheering protesters who follow her through as the military line disintegrates and obviously the woman who approaches the military line is Aung San Suu Kyi at the time why, why didn't she use a, a can of Pepsi that's my question but I'll let you continue <laughs> thanks for bringing down nice. thanks for bringing down this um this great historical kind of uh, memory of mine George this moving kind of political moment um, with your attempt. what? Well, so now you're shilling Agent Napoleon and now you're shilling Pepsi. You're just like a corporate infiltrator on this podcast, aren't you? I'm getting paid for this podcast. So, you know, maybe you guys are the suckers if you, if you don't have... <laughs> you don't, have, answer, you don't have corporate sponsors. The answer to that question, incidentally, is that they prefer Coke in Myanmar. Thank you. This is why we have experts on here, to, like, correct, like, um, to correct this kind of... The kind of nonsense that's spread by some people online about what the favorite soft drink is in other parts of the world. Anyway, Aung San Suu Kyi. I thought that was a reference to the drug straight. Okay, it's me corrected. <laughs> that's methamphetamines. Oh, sorry. 
Aung San Suu Kyi, at the time of the movie, um, 1995 movie, Beyond Rangoon, she's under house arrest, and she was under house arrest for a very long time. At the time I watched this movie, and up until, you know, fairly recently, the last few years, um, she's been the icon of... Um, the icon of the liberal left around the world. I mean, I've had students in my classes. I teach at university. I've had students in my classes. Kind of when I ask them who their political hero is, they raid. They mention her as a political hero. Um, and in addition, you know, back in 1995, Aung San Suu Kyi was kind of expected was the great other prisoner of conscience. Nelson Mandela had recently been released from prison a few years back. Apartheid had seen had been overthrown. South Africa had gone through this enormous kind of democratic transformation. And Aung San Suu Kyi was the next person, the next kind of great prisoner, the next great hope for human rights, for spreading human rights and liberal democracy around the world. Um, interestingly, that um, since she's actually come to power, because she's, if not the main, and Lee will tell us more about this, if not the main political player in Myanmar, Burma today, then certainly one of the major power brokers. And even though she doesn't have a formal position as leader, um, as leading her party, she's a tremendously influential political figure within the current um, transition period in Burma. And since the fact that she's actually got power, Nobody pays attention to her, except occasionally when bad stories surface. So this strikes me as something interesting about this prisoner of conscience who actually ends up with power and then gets ignored in terms of what the consequences of that are. Um, so, Lee, I wonder if you could tell us a bit more about what the situation with Aung San Suu Kyi is now. What her political status is and what's... What's problematic about her political record in power compared to the ideas that were kind of projected onto her while she was imprisoned by the military hunter? Yeah, so she, as you said, she spent a long time in under house arrest under the military regimes. And then uh, the military superintended a, a transition to what they call discipline flourishing democracy in 2010 under a new 2008 constitution. And initially, uh, Aung San Suu Kyi boycotted the um, constitutional referendum and then the elections. Um, but the process went ahead anyway. And then the new civilianized government started to win uh, plaudits from the West for the reforms that it was carrying out. And I think she realized that her previous stance, which was basically a moralistic form of just boycotting everything that the, the hunter was trying to do, wasn't working anymore. So in 2012, the then government engineered a by-election uh, and the NLD entered parliament. So she was elected in 2012. And then in 2015, there was another general election for parliament. Uh, the NLD, the National League for Democracy, her party, won a landslide. Uh, but she is constitutionally barred from becoming president. So she occupies a newly created position as, as state councillor, which is basically a sort of prime ministerial position. So technically, under the constitution, the, the, the president, the civilian president is the is nominally the, the head of the government. Uh, but he's a, just a kind of puppet figurehead. She's the one that's calling all the shots within red lines laid down by the military. So the military superintended the transition. They have safeguarded their position and interests. So they have 25 percent of parliamentary seats, which gives them a veto on any constitutional change. Um, they also hold the ministries of defence, uh, border affairs and home affairs, which gives them massive control over 
basically all the key areas of governance. And then the military commander in chief is the head of the armed forces, not the civilian president. So they're basically left holding the ring of the civilian administration. She has basically chosen to come into politics, try and change the constitution so that she could become president. She's failed to do that. So now she's left playing by the rules of the military. Uh, and as a result, she's massively constrained in what she can do. So she has, as you say, undergone this incredible transition from being this democracy icon, this kind of saintly figure during the 1990s and the 2000s, to now being seen as this, this great disappointment uh, because she's not providing moral leadership uh, for the many crises in the country, not least the, the Rohingya crisis in, in Rakhine State. Um, and it, it's interesting that she was not didn't just have this image projected onto her by the West. She actively cultivated that image, um, both internationally and domestically. So through the through the 90s, she kind of waged this spiritual battle with the generals over who was the most um, the most saintly, if you like. So the generals were patronizing um, Buddhist pagodas. They were rebuilding pagodas. They were giving lots of resources to the Buddhist clergy. And she would posture as um, a kind of Buddhist saint-like figure. Um, so she kind of cultivated that image herself too. But interestingly, since she came into politics in 2012, her justification for what she's done, the compromises that she's making, is just is straightforwardly Machiavellian. She basically says, look, I'm not a saint, I'm not an icon, I'm a politician, and I want to rule. She makes no secret of the fact that she wants to be president and so on. And therefore, I have to make compromises. But this is something that she didn't do for a very, very long time. So it's a sudden reversal. And I think for the more um, moralistic and naive supporters in the West, it has been quite a shock. And some of them have really turned against her as a result. Before we talk a bit more about her personal record um, in power for the Obama administration, this was a very important part of managing and kind of overseeing the Burma um, transition was a very important part of the about the second Obama administration's legacy kind of project. Being able to point to it as foreign policy success alongside what was happening in Sri Lanka and Tunisia at the time. Well, I think you're right that it was quite high profile, but I think it's quite important to look at the record um, of sanctions because that was basically the only Western policy towards Myanmar for uh, nearly two decades. And it, it did not have a positive impact. So... What the Obama administration did in around 2009 was to announce a so-called pivot to Asia. So they recognized that they'd been bogged down in the Middle East and they'd neglected Asia and they wanted to come back. And they made re-engaging with Myanmar, the new civilian government um, that was elected after 2010, as the kind of centerpiece of this uh, kind of the American return and this changed tone and this new era of engagement. But the the point there is that this was this was happening for internal reasons mostly completely autonomously not because of something the west had done but once the united states changed tack and said well actually we're going to engage and try and support this process then the rest of the western states kind of fought, quickly followed in train um and so britain in particular the rest of the eu basically followed in engaging with the regime and dropping sanctions so the West can try and claim that uh, as a victory and a legacy for Obama all they like, but actually had nothing to do with them. They chose to engage, and that's a positive thing, right? So when you know reformers start to move things along, it's helpful if they um, get a receptive and positive um, 
response from outside, but it's not determinate. Can you tell us a little um, bit more about what the military's strategy is? I mean, if you say that the sanctions didn't work, that that kind of external um, strangling of the of the Burmese economy wasn't what shifted their strategy. What what was it? And and also, I guess related to that, what is their end game? I mean, I, I suppose they want to guarantee their role in society, but maybe while still withdrawing from government. So kind of what is, maybe, maybe this is a bit basic, but what is the military in Myanmar? Does it function as a sort of military bourgeoisie in the country? Um, in some respects, yes. Um, so, I mean, Myanmar is home to the world's longest running ethnic conflicts. So even before it achieved independence from um, Britain in the late 1940s, it was experiencing ethnic minority insurgencies against the formation of the new state. So it's been dogged by these separatist conflicts all the way through. And so the the, the post-independence democratic regime was very short-lived. Uh, the military uh, launched a coup in 58 and then 60 and then ruled basically until um 1988 when the protests phil was talking about happened uh, under a one-party system that then collapsed in 1988 and then they ruled directly as a military hunter um until 2010. if we look at military regimes generally around the world they follow a certain pattern they intervene usually because there's some kind of perceived threat to existing social order or the integrity of the state or both and what has prompted military intervention in, in Myanmar has been mostly ethnic ethnic uh, separatism, the fear that the country is going to uh, break apart. Um, and that was combined in 88 with mass unrest in central Burma, where the dominant um, ethnic group, the Bama, are located. So what military regimes generally try to do is... Um, is solve the crises that prompted them to intervene in the first place and then hand power back to a civilianized regime that will keep things ticking over the way they want it to. The difficulty in Myanmar, what made the military regime so long running was the difficulty in solving those problems because these are such entrenched conflicts and because it was very difficult to find civilian partners that they could hand over power to because there was a lot of resistance to accepting this constitution that basically enshrined a permanent role kind of safeguard, power-sharing role for the military. Uh, but the military just simply don't trust civilians to keep the state on an even keel and and prevent the disintegration of the country. So they want to kind of superintend the political system. Now, they do also, ha they do also have extensive business interests as well, and there's been massive corruption and involvement in business deals, particularly in the borderlands, and they want to protect those interests. So they have corporate interests, but in terms of the, the political goals, it is to restore a certain form of order, which is a ethnically hierarchical one with the Bama uh, enshrined at the centre. It's a mostly Bama army, uh, but it's one that also where it's a, it's a unitary state and there's no fear of disintegration. So that's their long term goal. And they were doing that all the way from the early 90s onwards, trying to bring that about. They, ne they never changed their strategy one iota, which is one you know, important piece of evidence that sanctions didn't really make that much different. So, so then, I mean, part of the re, part of the way in which Burma kind of breaks through into um, stories in the West at the moment is with regards to ethnic separatism and conflict, and particularly with regards to um, the Rohingya. 
So Muslim, the Muslim minority in Burma, and often, I mean, it's hard to get a sense of the um, scale of this conflict and the scale of the oppression, because it's sometimes tagged as a forgotten genocide. And you hear kind of stories occasionally come through about um, refugee camps being burned down, about ghettos being assaulted, um, either directly or indirectly with support of the military and in the country um so but it's something which is seen as kind of um which is held up in contrast to the other kinds of conflicts that sometimes that frequently grasp or grip our attention such as syria or iraq um as pointed out as um a conflict which is overlooked but which is worthy of the same kind of um, concern and attention so could you tell us a bit more about what's happening with the Rohingya and what kind, on what scale is the conflict there and this degree of oppression? Yeah, so I should, I should say that there are a number of different Muslim groups in Myanmar and the Rohingya are a group that number about 1.2 million and they're located overwhelmingly in Rakhine State, which neighbours Bangladesh. And the Rohingya... Uh, this is a term that's been used particularly since the 1950s. Their um, stated identity is they're one of the national races of um, Myanmar. And so they, they deserve ethnic minority status and they deserve citizenship. Um, and they were recognised as such and courted politically in the early uh, post-colonial period. But since the 1970s in particular, they've been uh, subject to uh, extensive persecution and forced displacement. And the view that most people in the country take now is that the term Rohingya is just this fabricated term to try to make a claim of being an ethnic minority uh, that's indigenous to the country. The reality is they are illegal Bengali immigrants who have sneaked into the country, exploiting the country's weak borders and the, the rest of um, situation on the border. Well, wait a minute, but why would it be plausible um, that Bangladeshis would sneak into Burma? Well, I mean, there's historical reasons. So one is you have to remember that Burma was ruled by the British as part of the as part of the Raj. <clears throat> excuse me. Um, and so during that period, there was a significant influx of people from the Indian subcontinent who came as labourers, um, traders, merchants, and they secured a very strong position for themselves in the economy. Um, and there's a lot of resentment about that because they became big landowners, particularly during the 1930s economic crisis. And uh, they were not expelled, but a lot of these people left en masse when the Burmese government nationalised uh, all major businesses in the 1970s. So there is this kind of, there's a strong uh, kind of memory of imperialism, influx of uh, people from the Indian subcontinent, and uh, a kind of racist form of economic nationalism that still expresses itself today. And of course, we know with Bangladesh, because it's overpopulated, um, relative to its uh, infrastructure and its capacity to provide employment and so on, that there is a net outflow uh, of Bangladeshi migrants. And probably some um, migrants have come through, but there's also evidence that this community is, has lived in some form um, in that part of, of Burma uh, going back a couple of hundred years. Uh, and certainly, as I say, they, they had citizenship and they were courted politically in the early um, post-independence period. But then there are there are two um, big periods of uh, forced displacement. So in 1978, 1991, um, the, the military basically tried to push the Rohingya 
as they saw it back into Bangladesh. And in both occasions, about 200,000 people were displaced over the border into Bangladesh, most eventually returned. But then they were subject to increasing persecution. Um, they essentially were stripped of their citizenship in the late 1980s. And then the very draconian restrictions on their freedom of movement, the number of children that they're allowed to have, family planning, this kind of stuff. And then most recently, since 2012, there's been another round of violence. And this time, it's a little bit different in the sense that it started off as a communal conflict between the uh, Muslim Rohingya population and another ethnic minority um, grouping who comprise about two thirds of the population in that state, the ethnic Rakhine, who are Buddhist. And it started, it was triggered apparently by the alleged rape of a Rakhine woman by a Rohingya man. And then there was widespread uh, violence, burning down of houses and so on. And the military moved in to, to restore order, quote unquote. And in practice, that's led to enormous amounts of um, external and internal displacement because what the state has essentially done is accepted the, the view that these communities can't live together. They have to be forcibly segregated. Uh, so communities have been torn apart. Many people are in uh, internal, internally displaced persons camps, particularly the Rohingya, people living in pretty miserable conditions. So it is a serious situation still after the um, latest upsurge in, the, in violence in 2015-16 when a new... Well, I was um, going to say, so is it, I mean, how does this idea of it being a forgotten genocide? Well, I mean... It, it, there's two things there. Is it forgotten and is it a genocide? So to a certain extent, it is forgotten in the sense that it doesn't come up in the media very often, except when there are these upticks in violence. And the last time this happened was in 2016, because there was a, an armed resistance group um, called Haraka al-Yakin, which is, um, translates as faith movement. A kind of, a kind of uh, jihadist organisation has launched attacks on the, on the Burmese state. And they're funded by Rohingya emigres based in Saudi Arabia. So that got a lot of attention and a lot, and of course, of course, another round of displacement. And the displacement is serious. I mean, you've still got 120,000 people in IDP camps, um, 65,000 displaced into Bangladesh, 40,000 in India, tens of thousands elsewhere in Southeast Asia, particularly in, in Malaysia. Um, and in terms of numbers, uh, it's well behind um, refugee crisis in places like Syria, Afghanistan or South Sudan. Um, but it has the largest number of stateless people anywhere in the world. So it, it, viewed in that way, it's a really serious issue because there are only about 10 million stateless people in the world. And here we're talking about a population of over 1 million. Uh, and it's really east of um, Afghanistan it's, and Pakistan. It's the most serious humanitarian crisis in the world. Uh, and it is forgotten in the sense that the West doesn't pay that much attention to it. And the West is giving Aung San Suu Kyi's government quite a lot of elbow room to deal with it, quite a lot of breathing space. As to whether it's a genocide, um, there is an NGO called Fortify Rights, which has been in partnership with um, a group called the International State Crime Initiative at my university, who have described what the Burmese government is doing as genocidal practices because they can't quite pin it as genocide. I'm not sure it's particularly helpful to use um, that, kind of, that kind of terminology, uh, because I think it conjures up in people's minds uh, an attempt to sort of just destroy a whole ethnic group, a la the Holocaust, which I think is not what's going on. Um, 
even though the practices are, you know, they're abhorrent. Um, and also, I think it distracts from the underlying conflicts that that drive this particular crisis. Before we talk, I want to, I mean, you mentioned the fact about the kind of the, um, the ethnic rivalries and um, the fact that it's involved in particular um, this kind of uh, the conflict between um, Buddhists um, and Muslims is seems to be part of the picture. But before we talk a bit about that, just to, just to say briefly, um, how far is Aung San Suu Kyi, um, the kind of great hope, who used to be the kind of the second Nelson Mandela, how far is she implicated in the violence and oppression of the um, of the Rohingya minority? Well, she's partly implicated and partly she's operating under, you know, really serious structural constraints. Like I say, she's essentially uh, entered a system that's been designed um, for and by the military. And so, you know, there is no civilian supremacy over the over the military. The military commander in chief is the head of the armed forces and the police. Okay, but if she was, if she was this great kind of hero, this great kind of champion of um, freedom, human rights, democracy, kind of bringing peace and prosperity to ending military rule, um, then, I mean, surely it shouldn't be difficult for her to be able, she's spent long enough in um, under house arrest, I mean, surely it wouldn't be difficult for her to openly denounce the brutality of the military regime, right? Well, there is no military regime anymore. Oh, there's military, just, sorry. <clears throat> there's just a military. Okay, so the fact that she's chosen to work within this system means that she's working within the red lines laid down by the military. And, and she's chosen, therefore, to court them, to court their political support. Um, now, that that's, you know, the one hand. On the other hand, what people find most at fault with her is maybe what you're alluding to, which is she hasn't offered any moral leadership. She has not tried to do anything to shift popular attitudes. I think she recognises that the, the majority of her base uh, share the view that these are, in fact, illegal Bengali immigrants. It's really hard to find anybody in Myanmar who doesn't take that view. You talk to the people who were involved in the, the pro-democracy uprisings in 1988 and the people who were, um, who were courted by the West and seen as these liberal icons and so on, they all take the same view. They might believe that the human rights of these people should be an inviolable and you know want to look after these people, but they will not accept that these people are an ethnic group that belong to this country and have citizenship rights. They don't accept that. And what she's not been willing to do is to try to shift public opinion. So she hasn't done anything really to challenge those views. She's done almost nothing to challenge the rise of... Um, Buddhist nationalism and chauvinism until very recently. Um, she hasn't even led any kind of serious interfaith dialogues or anything like that. You know, the, basically the only thing that she's done is repeated this rather stupid mantra of, oh, we've got to bring the rule of law to Rakhine State and to the rest of the country. The rule of law is this magic wand that she thinks will solve all of um, Myanmar's problems. So in that sense, she's been, um, you know, a colossal disappointment. Just Lee, before we is... move on. Sorry, yeah. I just wanted to ask okay. Lee about what, what the role of Buddhism is um, with kind of Burmese nationalism. Um, it does it function as a sort of state ideology and what is the sort of Buddhist character of it? It's, it's complicated, but um, there have been various attempts by the state, different regimes over the years to use Buddhism as part of a 
um, a nationalist agenda. And the problem is that not all people who live in the country are Buddhist. So Buddhism is the majority religion, um, but there are lots of ethnic minorities, including those who have full citizenship rights, who aren't Buddhist. For example, there are very large Christian populations um, uh, in certain ethnic minority groups. Um, and when in the late 1950s, the, the then democratic government uh, flirted with the idea of making Buddhism the official religion in order to court popular support among the dominant ethnic group, the Bama, this was what prompted threats of rebellion and secession from the non-Buddhist um, ethnic minority groups. And that's what prompted military interventions. So there's a long history of this being a very um, divisive thing. And under the military, uh, the Buddhist clergy was basically nationalized and they, they patronized um, very conservative abbots and they um, built pagodas and repaired existing ones and so on. Um, and this was a deliberate attempt to demobilize the masses uh, and try to inculcate passivity, basically. But then we've also seen within Buddhism um, a more kind of uh, pro-democratic a progressive uh, group that were involved. For example, monks were involved in the 88 uprisings. Uh, they were involved in the protests in 2007, like I said. Um, but there is a very strong association, I think, between Bama identity, at least, um, and Buddhism. And at the moment, basically in the last few years, there's been this growing sense that Buddhism uh, is under threat, particularly from Muslims. Um, and so this is a kind of this is seen as a defensive response these days. Uh, this the, the the revival of a Buddhist nationalism and a Buddhist extremism, if you like, is seen as a defensive response to this um, demographic threat by these illegal Bengali immigrants who are coming. That is the way that a lot of people think about it. Okay, well, not to put too fine a point on it, but this is what we bring on our expert commentators for. But you know. Buddhism is supposed to be like, you know, kind of, um, I don't know, believe in the healing power of crystals and like, you know, kind of have a stall on like Brighton Promenade Beach or whatever and have one of those like, you know, crappy little shops where they sell little statues and ethnic knickknacks and stuff like that. You know, there's probably quite a few of them in most kind of British towns now. Um Bill, I think you could have read the Wikipedia entry for Buddhism. Even as well, a caricature. I don't try to educate myself through Wikipedia. This is why I set up the podcast. I mean, if you read the ancient Buddhist sutras, it does say, you know, thou must set up a crappy shop selling incense. <laughs> well, so how does this fit with um, what you've suggested about its kind of implication in extremist nationalism and hostility towards Islam in Burma, Myanmar? Yeah, well, I mean, the basic the basic truth, obviously, is that, you know, religion can be interpreted in all kinds of different ways. And what matters is how religion is appropriated and used by powerful groups. Um, so it doesn't seem no, that Buddhism... wait, 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 wait. Are you saying that Buddhism is not a religion of peace like yeah. Islam? Well, I do. <laughs> well, Islam and Buddhism are very similar in that sense, right? They can be taken and used in different ways. I do remember, I think in 2013, The Onion ran a story about a Buddhist extremist cell vowing to unleash tranquility upon the West. You know, this was this was the joke was, of course, that, well, you couldn't imagine a Buddhist <laughs> extremist, right? 
but in that same year, um, Time magazine put on its front page um, a Buddhist monk called um, Ashin Wiratu, um, and the headline was "The Face of Buddhist Terror." So in that same in that same year, you know, people were mocking the idea that Buddhism could ever be like this, and yet that's exactly what was happening. Um, so, you know, since since twenty eleven, certainly um, we've seen the emergence of that. Uh, particular strand of, of Buddhism. I'll come back to that in a minute. But what one of the things that struck me when I first did field work in the country, and I was what I was trying to work out was why, despite you know economic stagnation and and the hardship that was inflicted by military misrule and by sanctions, why had people not um, mobilised more against the military um, after nineteen eighty eight? And it's interestingly, everybody I spoke to said, "Well, it's Buddhism." Right. At least they attributed it in part to Buddhism because they said, um, oh, you know, preaches a, a message of tolerance, acceptance of one's fate, you know, that your position in society is about karma. Well, this is interesting. Um, so do you think like, I mean, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, but do you think like the rise in Western Buddhism is responsible for the decline in revolutionary consciousness in the West since the defeat of the minor strike and the end of the Cold War? <laughs> Uh, yes, absolutely. I, I, I would, I would pin it entirely upon those crappy shops selling incense and little, little Buddha statues and dream catchers. Cool. So we've, we've got, a, we've got a call to well, action. There we go. We've, we've got our exactly. You know what to do. We yeah. don't have to say it for you because that would be incitement. But you know what to do. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, this is like, this is like the worst misreading of Zizek ever. <laughs> <laughs> We also have now the answer to all of our political problems in the West. And I always suspected it was the Buddhists, to be fair. The Buddhists, the vegetarians, <laughs> the yoga-goers, I always knew it was them. That, fuck, we didn't know like the Beastie Boys were actually counter-revolutionary. They were the handmaidens of counter-revolution. Uh, the Beatles, please. Yes, if you wanted to go back that far, that's very true, actually. Even before the miners' strike, there you go, man. Yeah, the rot, the rot set in really early. This is why the miners were defeated, of course. Because of the Buddha, because the Beatles weren't Buddhist. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, good working class people who are being conned by this crazy Eastern mysticism. There you go. Yeah, that's it. It was. I tell you what. I mean, I grew up in in Yorkshire in the eighties, and I tell you, Buddhism was a big thing. <laughs> Everybody was rushing out and buying that those incense sticks, joss sticks, <laughs> Buddhist statues, going vegetarian. Yeah, we it was very big own. in the in the mining communities. You know, <laughs> you had to just accept your fate once you've been laid off by Thatcher. <laughs> just sit there and go on. Uh, <laughs> oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. Uh, we've got slightly off topic, um, but um, yeah. So the implication, the kind of how seriously, yeah. So you mentioned this, the Buddhist, the the Buddhist kind of face of terror who appeared on the Time magazine and who I believe is still like one of the leading kind of yeah. um, extremists in and kind of or ethnic religious extremists in Burma today. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, people can say on the one hand, Buddhism produces passivity. On the other hand, you know, monks were active in the 88 protest, the Saffron Revolution. And then since the, the transition to a more democratic regime, uh, this radical Islamophobic faction of Buddhism. So it's clearly nonsense to say that, you know, Buddhism is associated with either this or that political tendency. So what we've seen since 2011 is the emergence of a movement called Mabata, which is the Association for the Protection of Race and Religion. And that, that refers to that defensive idea that I, of protecting the race and religion from external threats that I mentioned a moment ago. And, and Wiratu is this 
figurehead figure. He's recently come under quite a lot of pressure. So recently, the government has started to take more action against um, Mabata and trying to basically close it down, or basically it's it's reopening under a different name. Um, and essentially, the position that Mabata has taken is not that dissimilar to that of far-right populists in Europe. So it points to Muslims as being this foreign influence, and they present a demographic and cultural threat to Buddhism. Uh, so the idea is, you know, if you, you in, in 10, 20 years' time, you know, we'll be completely overrun. And, uh, you know, they breed like rabbits, and, uh, you know, they're marrying our daughters and all this kind of nonsense. And so they led um, a big boycott movement against Muslim-owned businesses, and they've helped ferment um, division and riots. And so the violence that started in um, Rakhine State has actually spread to um, even the main cities in central Myanmar as a result. And so there's been attacks um, on the Muslim populations there who aren't Rohingya. They are um, ethnically Bama or other ethnic minority groups who who are citizens. They, they're not Rohingya. So that, that communal tension has spread thanks to this campaign. Uh, and it led to the passage of some the so-called race and religion laws that discriminate really heavily against Muslims in terms of family planning and this kind of thing. Um, but again, they're presented in this defensive manner. So um, that's been a really strong feature of the, of the transition. It has really allowed this um, you know, very uncivil society group to to come to the fore and really dominate discourse. At the same time, there are, of course, elements within the Buddhist clergy who are fighting against that, and ordinary lay people too who are trying to promote interfaith dialogue and prevent violence at the local level with some successes. But up until recently, um, Mabata has basically uh, done most of the running, and they've had a, they've had a free pass. Um, at at the media and uh, they intervened and they failed at the last election they really tried to persuade people to support the political party which was affiliated to the old military regime uh, which was illegal the clergy are not allowed to get involved in politics um, but they basically have impunity but people didn't listen to them so this was you know a sign that their power was not absolute that the nld constituted an alternative support block in society and could potentially you know, do something about it. But they've been very slow, really, to lift a finger against Mabatan. So th this discourse has, has taken a real so, uh, hold in society. So going kind of stepping back, I guess, and looking at it um, kind of over the long run, um, where are the, all those people who, um, who kind of lionized Aung San Suu Kyi um, and who praised her as the kind of this, the great heroine, and I remember, I mean, you know, the Clintons used to talk about it when Bill Clinton was president. Um, where are all the people who kind of who um, made her out to be, as you say, the kind of the saint of democracy and human rights in Burma now when she's either um, been unwilling or reluctant to intervene in any kind of meaningful way to try and pacify um, the situation in Burma? Well, I think there's been a lot of um a lot of silence on the part of some of the political figures in particular um it's my interactions with um british foreign policy makers for example they've 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 suddenly dis discovered a, a realism uh, an understanding of how complex uh, myanmar's internal problems are and how difficult they are to solve and how limited western leverage is and so on and 
essentially they just want to give as much space and support to the government to sort these problems out. And I think they think basically she's the best that we're going to get. So you have to kind of work with that. Uh, in the NGO world um, and at the popular level, I think there's quite a lot of real uh, disillusionment. And so campaign groups like Burma Campaign UK, which which took a very kind of moralistic, liberal interventionist stance, have basically captured UK foreign policy for about 15 years. They've become very critical again. Um, and, and so have lots of um, ethnic minority support groups as well, because they've always been a bit dubious about her that she prioritised democracy over uh, justice between ethnic groups, resource and power sharing and so on. Um, uh, but it's interesting that old loyalties die hard. So you, you do now see critical reports in the press, opinion pieces saying, you know, what, what on earth is going on? Uh, why isn't she speaking up and so on? Uh, and then you get kind of old war horses like John Pilger coming out and saying, well, how dare you criticise this woman? You know, she's a saint. She spent all these years in under house arrest. And, you know, you should really be criticising the military and this kind of thing. Um, but it's very low level. I think there's a sense in which, you know, this whole group of people worked for so many years to see her come to power. They they almost didn't criticise her now she's in there because well, what were you, what were you campaigning for then? Why did you try to leverage her into this position? Um, and, and and will it really help to criticise? Is it actually going to make the situation any better? And in most cases, as you know, Western intervention makes the situation worse. Um, to be a little bit, in this case, is no exception. To be a little bit sort of abstract about this, but I mean, why do you think um, Burma in particular captured the Western imagination and Aung San Suu Kyi's uh, struggle captured the imagination so much at the expense of others. I mean, was she the only kind of uh, person that these hopes and, and visions and desires could be projected onto? Or is there something specific about that society which uh, which captured the imagination? Um, well, I think it's a few things. So one is, um, Phil mentioned at the beginning that she was depicted as the Nelson Mandela of Southeast Asia. So there was very heavy um, analogy drawing to, to South Africa. And it was very important actually making the case for sanctions um, that this was like somehow like South Africa and she was like Nelson Mandela, despite the massive differences. And many people who were in, active in the anti-apartheid movement, they obviously lost their raison d'etre with the end of the um, apartheid regime and the, the onset of majority rule in 1994. And so many people in these groups actually swung around to face this new target and they were given a kind of new lease of life um, by this new uh, conflict. Another thing I think is there was a wave of democratic transitions at the end of the 1980s. So the Philippines, for example, uh, in 1986, there was mass mobilization which brought down the Marcos regime. There was also a transition to democracy in South Korea and in Taiwan. And there was a feeling, and of course, there was mass unrest in China as well, um, just a year after the 88 uprising. So there was this sense, I think, at that time that this was the wave of the future, right? All the old, cruddy state socialist regimes were falling, and this was just kind of one domino that just needed a bit more of a push. Um, and the third thing is obviously the imperial link. Um, for whatever reason, um, lingering imperial delusions the old imperial powers feel some sense of ownership over these countries, even decades after they've been independent. So France continues to meddle in the affairs of West Africa. And in Britain's case, um, 
meddling in in Myanmar. And for the Blair government in particular, I think this was an area where Blair really thought he could make a big difference. He could really sort of shape shape this and leave a big legacy. I mean, he was completely wrong, but this was this was certainly his view. So I think those three things come together in the case of in the case of Myanmar to to make it this cause celebre in the West. She yeah, was I mean, also was very well. I mean, it, yeah, it always let me I just yeah I mean just to add a little bit to this is just that she always struck me as a character which fit a certain sort of character profile of the political hero for Western humanitarians and liberals, um, and one which is particularly I guess one could say as a political hero sort of anti or or apolitical in the sense that. Um, yeah. As a prisoner of conscience, she declared, you know, this is my stance, this is my conscience, I can do no other. So it's sort of this character which is bereft of any um, ambition, either personal or political, um, beyond um, beyond freedom in a kind of pretty abstract, non-concrete sense. And also um, embodying certain a certain, you know, inveterate opposition without any strategy, really. So I think probably mm. when, when the scales fall from people's eyes, when they see her pursuing the transit the transition to democracy program that she's doing now while in government still dealing with the military still dealing with the military which holds a, a huge amount of power key ministries and the rest of it um and that is something that can't be computed with this sort of apolitical political hero figure which uh which is follows her conscience and doesn't really have any sense of strategy or tactics or gets in gets her hands dirty effectively yeah, so I, I think I've I've got a question which which adds to Alex's a little bit. Is, is well, I was just that... going to I was just going to ask George if you had any questions because you've been yeah, so. I mean, quiet. why did you why did you interrupt me? I was literally just about to <laughs> indeed indeed Phil. Because why did you interrupt? I was going to say I was just going to check if maybe you know in addition to Pepsi and the Age of Napoleon, maybe you <laughs> support the NLD as well. Maybe um, you're an Aung San Suu Kyi supporter who wants to defend her. That's all. So I actually do have some other promotional consideration furnished by by Apple. Um, no, <clears throat> no. So I guess I guess my question, which um, <clears throat> is, I, I don't know, is, is is there kind of some some lessons here about the almost the kind of the correct way from a Western point of view to do to kind of do oppositional kind of anti-authoritarian politics? Because it does seem like there's this, and this is partly what Alice was describing. There's this model of how to be a, a Western media darling that that Mandela also kind of kind of followed. Um, is there a is there a kind of a blueprint here of, of, of ways to to get yourself locked up under under house arrest and to, <laughs> to, to be I don't know to be long suffering and, and to get and to get the Guardian Easter's football it's worth on 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 your side. Is that what you aspire to, George? Uh, well, yeah, yeah, maybe. I mean, I'm I'm here to learn from the experts to pick up political strategies and tips. Well, I think we've got to remember when it was that Nelson Mandela won popular support in the West, um, particularly from Western governments, uh, because you have to remember all the way through the Cold War, he was regarded as you know, a terrorist, um, particularly by the Thatcher government. And they didn't want to see him come to power, but he became much more acceptable and cuddly, even for the right. Um, obviously, once the stakes were lowered, once the Cold War was over, but also when he uh, you know, would, was determined to pursue a non-revolutionary route to power. So when he was um, released from um, custody, he would pursue a transition through negotiations and ideally through non-violence. Um, although he never quite renounced the armed struggle, but you know we could kind of put that to one side because he was trying to negotiate a process. And I think 
the the key to understanding Aung San Suu Kyi's acceptability is not, I wouldn't say apolitical because she was pro-democratic. So in that sense, she ticked the box. You know, she was she wanted liberal democracy. You know, what what else could you possibly uh, want after the Cold War? But she wanted to pursue non-violent struggle, and I think that kind of Gandhian um, mentality uh, is that is the sine qua non of, of attracting Western support. Um, obviously, all the way through the Cold War, the African National Congress um, was engaged in armed struggle, and it was supported in that by um, the Soviet Union, China, Cuba, etc. Um, I guess, and that I... was one thing that the West didn't like. But the but Aung San Suu Kyi never supported, really, um, armed struggle. And the elements that fled to the jungle after 1988 and tried to form a, a government in exile and the student resistance groups and, and the ethnic minority resistance groups, they've always been given short shrift by the West. So what the West likes is a kind of non-threatening form of democracy that it is liberal, it's not revolutionary, it's not associated with violence, etc., etc. So I think it, you're right that she did tick all those boxes um, of how to be an ideal democracy icon. I mean, I guess when I when I say apolitical, I mean that it's someone who doesn't engage in in lowercase p politics and low politics, that it's they just act as a beacon for for certain political values, but without the getting involved in the nitty gritty of compromise, of of struggle, of and so on. That one just sort of stands um, impervious in the face of authority or or opposition. I want to kind of um, I want to draw out, I guess, kind of build on what Alex is saying, and also kind of perhaps resolve then something which has been kind of floating in the discussion, but we haven't actually kind of directly addressed. Maybe, and that'll probably be, um, that'll probably be the opportunity to wrap the discussion up is, so you present, you know, on the one hand, we have this image of the kind of the saint of human rights who's under house arrest by the hunter for many, for many, many years. And is the darling of the kind of Western media, um, the Nelson Mandela of Southeast Africa. And then on the other hand, you said that when she comes out of house arrest and she agrees to kind of participate in this military managed transition process, um, she makes very clear politically that she's cultivating a very different persona. Um, so how do we resolve the, the two kind mm. of stereotypical images that we've developed? Because it seems to me there's a case you can make for what you say about her as a kind of um, as a Machiavellian character that she makes very clear that she's interested in power. Um, she wants to be president. She's seen the error of her ways and she's engaging in this political process of reform with the military. And so she's renouncing or distancing herself at least from being the um, the noble, dignified human rights icon who will never dare to get her hands dirty in politics. At the same time as we can criticize her for her lack of political um, support for the Muslim minority, um, the Rohingya in Burma. So do you, I mean, give us, give us your feel, like what do you actually kind of think about her? Um, and what are we supposed to take away then from this, these contrasting images of Aung San Suu Kyi as a political leader? It's a very good question. And it's one that I've reflected on a lot myself um, in the last couple of years. And I think the story that makes the most sense is not this kind of Damascene conversion from um, saint to Machiavellian politician around 2012, but a more consistent story is somebody that's always been interested in power. 
Um, you have to remember that she is the daughter of the country's independence leader, General Aung San, who was assassinated um, basically on the eve of independence and so never exercised power. So he has this um, heroic, mythical status among the population, and that is in large part what accounts for her personal popularity. And she is a, basically a dyed-in-the-wool patrician. She, she, she thinks it's quite natural that she should rule. Um, and I think that she took a moralistic stance in the 90s and the 2000s because, A, it did reflect her personal moralism. I think she's a very moralistic character. Um, it also attracted support from moralistic Western liberals. And also, crucially, I think it was because the NLD was not capable of doing anything else. So after the um, 88 protests were suppressed, the NLD was basically shut down in most parts of the country and the NLD could not offer anything like uh, sustained political opposition. All other alternative organisations beyond the military and the ethnic minority resistance groups had been completely crushed and disorganised. So civil society, political parties, they basically were, were crushed. They didn't, they didn't really exist. And fear and dissolution um, basically ruled. But People were kind of simmering and boiling about the 3,000 people who'd been killed in 88 and the military was still struggling to get a grip on society. So she could still believe that this boycott stance, the crime just opposing whatever the hunter was trying to do and trying to force it to relinquish power and trying to encourage the West to get involved and so on, could work. And when the NLD walked out of the National Convention in 95, the hunter did have to abandon it. Um, so you can see that from a certain perspective, this was something that could work, maybe. There was no real political strategy to it, just moralistic opposition. The reality, I think, was that there was a big shift in the power relations between the, the state and its opposition over the next decade, particularly because of uh, support from China, um, ceasefire settlements with the ethnic minority resistance groups, the doubling of the size of the army, the coming online of big um, oil and gas deposits in particular, things like this. And I think yeah, that's what allows the regime to move when it does um, from the early 2000s onwards in creating this very slow, very gradual, very stage managed transition to discipline flourishing democracy. And then when she still tried to boycott it, so she's boycotted the um, she said, no, people should vote no against the constitution and she boycotted the 2010 elections and that split the NLD. Part of the NLD split up and said, no, we've had enough of this. We're actually going to participate. This is our best chance. And then after the elections, the, the regime starts to embark on reforms and the West suddenly starts to think, ah, we're seeing movement. We're seeing progress. We need to engage. And I think at this moment, she sees that this, this old strategy of just holding firm, sticking to your principles, boycott, etc., is not going to work. And she sees that now if she's going to get power, she needs to behave um, in a much more pragmatic way. Um, and, so she she's spends, a, and she she's spends the next few years. She's a Western imperialism, basically. No, she's not a tool of Western imperialism. I think she has strategically tried to use Western pressure to her advantage. Um, but when the West started to break away, she realised that the rules of the game were changing. And revealingly, she spent the next three years trying to change the constitution to allow her to become president that was her top priority so the nld has basically no policies on on practically anything its main policy was change the constitution so the magic wand was her as president and she would bring about the changes that were required 
So but maybe this is maybe this is a connection as well then between these two kinds of periods that you're talking about is that it's a politics that's very intensely focused around her, whether it's her under so, house yeah. arrest or whether it's her kind of there is no policy, but just driving towards her becoming president. Um, it's yeah. always intensely focused on her and her leadership role as an individual. Yes, absolutely. And uh, it, that reflects the broader nature of, of Myanmar politics, which is heavily factionalized and heavily um, based around individual personalities. The NLD is very little more than a personal vehicle for her. And at times, I think she recognizes this is problematic because she does from time to time say, you know, I can't do everything myself, etc. But on the other hand, she has very strong patrician or authoritarian tendencies that centralizes power and authority in her hands. That now leads to governmental paralysis. And it leads to the non-development of the political party, which leads to a lot of people to worry. Uh, she is a woman who is ageing. She's not in the best of health. And when she goes, does the NLD have even a second line of talent that's able to step up uh, and run things? It's very doubtful. Um, so I think that it, there is a consistent story to tell, but it's not a very pleasant one. It is one where she's actually just a typical Bamar politician. She's a Bamar chauvinist. And she believes that if she's in power, she will be able to sort things out um, and everything should be subordinated to that goal. Um, and she's now abandoned attempts to revise the constitution because she realises she can't get it through. But then she's left with a government that has very little policy direction because that has been the goal you know, up until now. So very little is actually happening in terms of economic reform, in terms of the wider peace process and so on. Um, and she's basically outsourced the Rohingya situation to a commission led by Kofi Annan, which has just reported um, uh, yesterday, as we're recording this, uh, to come up with all these policy recommendations. But whether they'll be enacted uh, and how it will get past all the inevitable resistance against these recommendations really remains well, to be seen. Lee, I don't know why you're so cynical. If Kofi Annan is in charge, I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure everything's going to be fine. So you've heard it here, listeners, about Buddhist authoritarianism, Buddhist militarism and extreme nationalism. Um, uh, George, I don't know if you want to add anything about maybe Fanta or Seven Up <laughs> or um, I don't know, some kind of thing about the NLD because they're probably paying you in Burmese rubies or something. I don't know. No, I just want to say Jeez. that I just want to say that Sprite is a, is, is a refreshing refreshing drink it's really it's a really good option it will quench your thirst it's also vastly superior to seven up so, fair enough as expected um thank you all very much uh, for tuning in for listening thank you to our guest who came on today it's uh, goodbye for me it's goodbye from our guest goodbye uh say goodbye uh, george and alex bye-bye goodbye. Um, and uh, we join us again next week when we're going to be talking about further uh, political events and happenings um, with further product <laughs> placements and discussions Just for, generic, other, generic and politics. for the podcast as well. Political events uh, and happenings. I mean, ooh, <laughs> that's a cliffhanger. Fuck Game of Thrones. That's how to get people to tune in next time. <laughs> Well, okay, so you're going to hear about, I don't know, fucking um, Cherry Dollar and Dr. Pepper next week. So <laughs> should have stopped, stopped at fucking. <laughs>